morning we're reading from John chapter 4, verse 1 to42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he, had, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, 
One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And this is the word of the Lord. Just bow our heads to pray for a moment. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, just outside the city of Nablus, on the Palestinian West Bank, is the village of Balata. And in the late 1980s and early 1990s, Balata was the site of major rioting, that rioting that's now infamously known as the first infatada. All told, the violence led to the deaths of more than a thousand people. Perhaps less known is the fact that it, until the time of those uprisings, Balata was the home to as many as half of the world's Samaritans, tiny population that's still left. But for Christians, Balata's claim to fame lies within the precepts of its Eastern Orthodox Church and Monastery. And there you will find what purports to be, and likely is, the site of Jacob's Well, the very location in which this morning's reading from the Gospel according to St. John took place, and from which you can still draw water to this day. In New Testament times, the town was known as Sychar, but its Old Testament name was Shechem. It was at Shechem that the Lord appeared to Abram and gave him the promise, to your offspring I will give this land. It was at Shechem that late Jacob later settled and built an altar to the Lord. It was at Shechem that Joseph's bones were buried. And generations later, it was at Shechem that the people of Israel assembled before Joshua. And there they solemnly pledged, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord. The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Well, lying on major trade routes that ran both east-west and north-south, Shechem had once been a thriving commercial center. However, over the centuries, it had gradually gone downhill, so that by Jesus' time, all that remained was a sleepy little hamlet. Now, can you put the map up? I don't know if you can see it, but if you were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, the shortest route is that white one down the middle, 
that would take you right through Sikar. That is, if not for one serious complication. The problem was that such a route would take you through Samaria. And as we read in this morning's passage from John, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The result was that the vast majority of Jewish travelers going from Jerusalem to Galilee would be forced to take a wide sweep eastwards across the Jordan River. You see that red path? <clears throat> and then go down the side of the Jordan River and finally uh, cross back over um, when they reached uh, near Jerusalem. And needless to say, uh, this little additional part of the journey uh, added anywhere from two to four days uh, to their trip. Well, you can take the map off now. <laughs> Jesus, however, had no such reservations. And so it is that we find him with his disciples in the tiny Samaritan village of Sychar. Now, John does not tell us what time of year it was when Jesus and his disciples were traveling, but he does tell us the time of day. It was the sixth hour, he says, which means noon. And so the sun was at its very height. And I know that for much of the year, the temperature in that region can reach well into the 30s. So perhaps you can imagine what it must have been like for him to have been journeying on foot under the blazing heat of the Near Eastern sun. The sight of the village, little village, uh, must have been a welcome one. Wearied from all the walking they had do been doing, uh, Eugene Peterson, in fact, in his translation in the, in the message, uses the word worn out from all their walking. And while the disciples went off to see where they could buy some <coughs> provisions for lunch, Jesus took the opportunity to sit down in the cool shade beside a well. So it is that John gives us a little reminder of Jesus' humanity. He was not Superman or Captain America or Thor. He was not faster than a speeding bullet or more powerful than a locomotive. And he couldn't leap over tall buildings in a single bound. Rather, as we read in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. And so it is that at the outset of his ministry, we find Jesus being tempted by the adversary. A few weeks ago, reading from John chapter 2, we saw him angry as he drove out the money changers from the temple, lashing at them with a whip and overturning their tables. Later in the Gospels, we find him exhausted to the point where he fell asleep in one of his followers' boats. So soundly asleep, in fact, that even the waves crashing over the gunnels and threatening to capsize it, even in the midst of that, he continued to sleep. Now, why is all this important? Well, in the early days of the church, the very earliest days, in fact, there sprang up a heresy called Docetism. And the core teaching of the Docetists was that Jesus only appeared to be human. And that doctrine was quickly rejected by the church for several reasons. First, the fact that Jesus was fully human enables him to relate to you and to me in the fullest possible way. 
The letter to the Hebrews, from which we read last year, affirms that in Jesus, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this gives us, us the assurance that we can come to him in our own weakness, in full confidence that you and I will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Secondly, the fact that Jesus was fully human, it was that fact that enabled him to be fully your and my representative when he bore our sins on the cross. The Bible recognizes Jesus as the new Adam who has come into the world to undo all the wrong and destruction that are a result of human sin. As the Apostle Paul declared to the Christians in Galatia, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the full rights of God's sons. <clears throat> And so in this morning's reading, we meet with a fully human Jesus, weary and thirsty after a long trek. He took a moment to sit down and rest by the side of a well. The next time he looked up, though, there was a woman from the village coming to draw water from the well. Not having a bucket of his own, he asks her if he might take a drink from her. Well, his request was met with a look of horror and raised eyebrows, if you can imagine them. What? You, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, to share from my bucket? Well, at this point, you may be asking yourself, what was all that about? Well, first of all, the Samaritan woman was well aware that for centuries, Jews had regarded all non-Jews, and especially Samaritans, as unclean. That meant you couldn't come into physical contact with them or with anything they had touched. Well, if that doesn't make sense to you, just think back a year or two ago to the COVID epidemic. Imagine yourself coming up to a complete stranger and asking if you might take a sip from their water bottle. Well, what kind of response do you think you get? Are you crazy? Don't you take any precautions? And so begins one of the longest conversations in all of John's Gospel. And there's something about it that is utterly delightful as the woman engages Jesus in a deeply thoughtful theological discussion. Today in our age, we might think nothing about it, but you have to realize that the attitude towards women in the first century was poles apart from what it is today. The very first prayer, do you know it, that every Jewish male recited in the morning as he woke with the cock crow, having barely opened his eyes and before he was allowed even to put his feet on the ground, do you know what that prayer was? Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, that you did not create me a Gentile a slave, or a woman. And here was Jesus, a Jew, engaging in what can only be described as a profound theological discussion with a woman. 
Now, when you read the Gospels, you'll find that this isn't a one-off incident. Jesus' attitude towards women was highly countercultural for a first-century Jew. He was happy for a woman, and an unclean one at that, to interrupt him while he was in conversation with a ruler of a synagogue. He was satisfied to allow Mary to take a place among the men while he was teaching in her home. He commended a widow as a model of generosity. He accepted the anointing by a woman's precious oil as a beautiful foretelling of his death. And it was women who were the first to bear witness to his resurrection. Jesus' acceptance and honoring of women continued in the early church. As early as the day of Pentecost, quoting from the prophet Joel, the apostle Peter proclaimed, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The Apostle Paul has been maligned as a misogynist, but it was he who affirmed that as many as you of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so it is that in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we find the seeds of a revolution. We are given a glimpse of the new society, the Jesus community, in which women, women and men take their proper place as equals alongside each, other as, uh, each other's counterparts, even as Eve was drawn from the side of man in the Garden of Eden. But let's take a look at the conversation itself. Jesus answers the woman's objection with the response, if you were aware of who you were talking with, you might have asked him for living water. Of course, the woman thought Jesus was referring to running water like you'd get out of a tap. Are you crazy? Where are you going to get that kind of water from? You don't even have a bucket to draw water from this well. To which Jesus replies, whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become within them a spring of water gushing forth to eternal life. But the woman still doesn't catch on. Sir, give me that water, and I'll never have to break my back hauling water from this well ever again. At this point, Jesus shifts the conversation in a deeply personal direction. Go and bring your husband over, and then we can talk some more. When she claims to have no husband, Jesus reveals that he's well aware of the half dozen men who have been a part of her life. And you can only imagine the shock and discomfort she must have felt at that revelation. She may have lived a sordid life, but this woman, however, was no slouch. She had all her wits about her. And it seems in less than a second, she's saying back to Jesus, so I see you're a prophet. 
Then she vainly attempts to divert the conversation into a religious argument. The age-old hostilities surrounding the question as to which group was worshiping God in the proper way, the Jews or the Samaritans. This, she thought, would be sure to get away from that touchy subject of her relationships with the opposite sex. But Jesus is ready for her. God is not concerned about which mountain people worship on. He's infinitely bigger than that. No, says Jesus, the true God is far more interested in what's happening on the inside of our lives, not in external rituals. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshiper God is looking for. At this, the woman begins to open her true heart and expresses the deep yearning that has long burned within her for the Messiah to come and rescue her. To which Jesus answers, I who speak to you am he. And of course, what happens? Just as the conversation is reaching this critical point, who walks into the scene but the disciples? They kept silent. But the woman must have seen the look of horror on their faces that Jesus was alone with a woman, a Samaritan woman at that, and engaging in conversation with her. She didn't need anyone to tell her to make herself scarce. Well, whether it was in fear of the disciples or in amazement at the man she'd been talking with, she left her bottle behind and forgot about it as she ran off into the village. And there she became the first evangelist in the New Testament. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. As though any of, as though the, any of the villagers hadn't been whispering about exactly that topic for years. Can this be the Christ? And John tells us, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And you see, that's the thing about living water. If you really have a t had a taste of it, it's something you can't keep to yourself. As much as we might like to, and as much as we might be tempted to, we cannot bottle it in. The streams of living water will always well up and burst their bounds. And the one who gives them at the well, asking, give me, the, give me a drink, he is also the one who would later cry out for you and for me, I thirst. Could we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this amazing conversation that you had with that woman at the well and for the way in which it transformed her life. And we thank you even more for those words that you spoke from the cross, I thirst, that you should hang there and die for the likes of us. And I pray that we may not only know the gift of your salvation, but that we may drink daily 
from those springs of living water with which you so bountifully supply us. For your name's sake. Amen.